Good morning. It is certainly good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, we will be continuing a series of studies that, that I've been doing the last couple times that I have spoken on Sunday morning on the, uh, the Philippian letter, uh, a series entitled Let This Mind Be In You. If you remember, we've been talking about the war that's being raged right now. And how that war is being fought in your heart and in your mind. Every day, at every moment, there is a spiritual battle raging for your heart and for your mind. And Satan, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, will use and exploit every avenue to try to win this battle for your mind. He will attempt to build strongholds in your mind that will come between you in your relationship with God. But God calls us to have a different mindset, a godly mindset. And one of the best examples or sections of scriptures that deals with the mindset that we are supposed to have as Christians is Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Our theme verse for this series has been Philippians 2 and verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Over and over again in this letter to the Philippians, Paul reminds them how to think, how their mindset should be, because he knew what this war meant against sin and against Satan, and how important it is in our relationship with God. If you were here last time, we covered chapter 1, we talked about the the gospel-centered mind. The mindset that we're called to have as disciples of Christ. A mind that views trials as opportunities to advance the gospel. A mind that hopes and knows that heaven awaits, but also realizes that we have a job to do on this side of life. And this morning, we will be moving to the next section of this letter, and we will be looking at the first 18 verses of Philippians 2. If you would, grab a Bible and turn to Philippians 2. We will read verses 1 through 18 for our text here this morning. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world." holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul spent much of the first section of this letter dealing with what I would call our internal mindset that we talked about in chapter 1, how we personally view ourselves and how we view our relationship with God. And then in this section that we read this morning, there's a shift in the text, and Paul begins to discuss not just our internal mindset, but also our mindset towards those around us, especially those in the church. The church at Philippi dealt with the same issues that... Every church since the establishment of the church has dealt with. They dealt with the same thing that the church at Corinth dealt with. They dealt with the exact same thing that the church at 2724 La Prada Drive deals with today. Take a look around you this morning and you will see what I am talking about. If you look around you, you will see the thing that causes any and all issues that ever come up in the church. And what is that? The thing that causes problems and issues, and yes, at times sin, the thing about the church that causes headaches and hurt feelings, the thing that at times drives people away from the church, the thing about the church is that it's full of people. The church is full of people. The church at Corinth dealt with numerous problems that Paul addresses in his letter to them, and they were a result of problems in the relationships of the people. And it appears that the church at Philippi dealt with some of those same things. The thing about the church is that it's full of people. And when we don't have the proper attitude, when we don't have the proper mindset towards the people around us, problems occur. God's plan for the church is perfect. And His plan for His church is for a body of believers to be joined together to carry out His great commission. To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to train and nurture disciples together. You will hear people say from time to time, I'm a Christian, I am religious, but I don't go to church. I don't believe in organized religion. I serve God from home or from wherever I am. I don't need a church. And I'm here to tell you today that is wrong and is against the Word of God. You cannot serve God in the way that He says in His Word unless you are an active member of a local congregation. And when I say active, I don't mean just coming to church, coming to a worship service once a week. When I say active, I mean more involved in that. I mean being connected and active and involved in the congregation. 
And the thing about that local congregation that you are called to be part of is that it's full of people. And that, my friends, is exactly God's plan. And His plan can only be carried out properly when we have the proper mindset towards those around us. And we treat each other the way that God intended. And Paul addresses that in this section of Scripture that we read this morning. So this morning, I want for us to look at this text and see Paul's instruction to the Philippian brethren on how they viewed and how they treated each other and see if we can incorporate these characteristics into our mindset as a congregation. The first thing that Paul points out that is, a, that is necessary as part of this mindset towards those around us is a spirit of unity. Look back at the second verse of the text this morning where he says, Be like-minded, being of one accord, being of one mind. Paul urges the brethren at Philippi to be unified. This is very similar to what Peter would say in 1 Peter 3 when he says, Finally, brethren, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love his brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. So when Paul and Peter appeal for unity to be of one accord, what did they mean? Were they calling us all to be the same person? That we would have everything common and that, we, that everybody would be the same? Of course not. He wasn't asking for everyone to be the same person in, in, in one sense. You could look at the apostles and their personalities and you would see that that, that was certainly not the case in the early church. The, among the apostles, there were fishermen and tax collectors and physicians. There were people that were from different backgrounds. Some were very boisterous. Some were more in the, uh, in the background, behind-the-scenes type people. They came from different stations in life. The early church was filled with Jewish and, and converts and Gentiles, people from different geographic regions and ethnic backgrounds, a, a diverse set of people. And God doesn't call for us to all be carbon copies and the same people today. We aren't, and in fact cannot all be the same person. In this congregation, there are lawyers and and salesmen and engineers and, and teachers. There are people from a wide range of ages. There are people from different races and and, and ethnic backgrounds. We all have different family histories and family backgrounds. We're from different stations in life and different stages of spiritual development. We can never all expect to be all the same. We do not, I promise you, we do not want or need 150 Jeff McFadden's. Unity is not that everyone conforms to be like everyone else in the congregation in all aspects. I think it's instructive to look at the Greek word that is used in places like 1 Peter 3 and Philippians 2. In some places, like Ephesians 4, where it talks about unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, there's, this, there's a call for this unity, a unity of theological or doctrinal uh, unity. And that is certainly absolutely true, but the, the idea or the, or the concept that, that they're talking about in First Peter th- uh, 3 and Philippians 2 is, is a different context than this. The root word used when it says things like one mind is a Greek word phronio or phroneo. The idea is not uniformity in our opinions, but rather unity in our mindset or our attitude or our disposition. It isn't referring 
necessarily to a, to a unity in ideas or viewpoints. It's dealing with our attitudes and our mindset. In the church, we do not need to have uniformity in matters of opinion. In fact, a lot of problems occur when people demand uniformity on opinions. But we must have unity. We must be of one accord in our mindset and our attitude, both toward God and toward each other. And that can be hard sometimes. Like I've said over and over, the church is full of people. And we people tend to mess things up. And we allow our sinful attitudes and thoughts and actions to creep into the church and into our relationships. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what does this unified mindset look like? What are the characteristics of this mindset that we all need to have? The first thing that Paul points out that's part of this unified mindset, the first characteristic that we all need to foster is a spirit and mindset of humility. In verses 3 and 4 that we read a moment ago, Paul says that we must have a humble spirit and look out not for our own interests, but rather look out for the best interests of others. This is similar to, similar to what Paul told the church at Rome in Romans the 12th chapter, starting in the 3rd verse, where he said, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Paul tells the church at Rome to not think more of yourself than you should. To have a humble mindset that we are part of a body and all members of that same body are valuable. In both of these verses, Paul provides a wonderful definition of what humility actually is. Humility is not, and there's, I think, confusion about this at times, humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Some people have this idea that to be humble thinks you walk around with your head down saying, I'm not good, I'm not worth anything, I'm not valuable, I can't do anything, I'm just worthless. And that is not what it means to be humble. I'm here to tell you today that you are valuable, you are loved, you are worth so much that God sent his son to die for you. You were worth the blood of Jesus Christ. Humility isn't thinking that you are worthless or of no value. Humility is what Paul describes when he says, rather than thinking about yourself all the time, rather than putting yourself first all the time, you need to think of your neighbor and those around you and their value. It's placing others and their needs above your own. It's recognizing not that we don't have any value, but rather recognizing the value of those around us. C.S. Lewis once said, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. 
The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with awe in the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. When we all recognize the value of those around us, when we all begin to place the value of others and their needs above our own interests and our own desires, our relationships will flourish. And we will begin to function as God intended, both inside and outside the church. But the problem that we all, we all run into is that instead of humility, we let pride creep in. We are too often like the disciples when they were arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And the problem was they weren't concerned with being great in the kingdom of God. They weren't concerned with having a seat at the table that night that they were sitting around talking with with Jesus. They were concerned with being the greatest. They were concerned with who was going to have the best seat at the table. And the root of that problem was their pride. And over and over and over again in Scripture, we see the danger of pride. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 4 says, A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Doesn't that seem to describe us at times in our homes when the husband and wife let pride infect their relationship? Instead of having a home that carries out the will of God, we get wrapped up in our pride and our homes become places of conflict instead of places that nurture discipleship. In our churches, when we're too busy arguing about who's in charge and who's the most important and who's going to get their own way and who's going to get to decide this and decide that, instead of having churches that are lighthouses for the lost and and, and sanctuaries for the saved, we have churches with bitterness and fighting that drive people away from them. Pride led Satan to rebel against God. Pride leads us to destroy our relationships and our homes and our churches. Pride will make us think that we are in charge of our own lives. Pride will make us think that we are the the bosses, that we're the little kings of our own kingdoms. Pride will keep us from forgiving our brothers when they've sinned against us. And pride will keep us from kneeling before our king. But if we will shift our mindset away from pride and take on a humble mindset and put others first, we'll begin to do the second thing that Paul draws our attention to, and that is we will begin to serve each other. In verses 5 through 7 that we read this morning, Paul urges the Philippian Christians to follow the example of Christ and take on the same mindset of service. He says that even though Jesus is equal with God, He made Himself of no 
reputation. And he took on the form of a servant. Do we follow that example? Do we take on a role of service? Or do we expect for people to come and serve us? I think at times we all struggle with this. In our homes, we get into trouble when the husband or the wife thinks that the other, the other spouse and, and kids are there to be their little servants. And we don't sit there probably and think, you know what, these people are my servants. I'm the king. But we sure act like it sometimes, don't we? And there are even times when we let kids in our homes think that they're in charge of things and, and, that, and that we let the kids get to the point where they think that the parents are there to serve them and give them whatever, whatever they want. And everyone in the home begins to think that they're little, the little kings of those kingdoms and instead of servants, serving the people around them, dysfunction and, and, and all kinds of conflict begin to occur in the home. And this mindset creeps into the church. We begin to think that, that the church is here to serve me. What's the church going to do for me? What are these people going to do for me? How can, how can all these people do something for me? And we get offended when people aren't running to serve us. And that leads to bitterness and divisions and the congregation is hamstrung from being an effective church. Leaderships are destroyed when the elders or the deacons begin to think like this. Churches are devastated when we begin to be more concerned about our greatness and my spot at the table and and where I rank on things. When we begin to think like that, the church is hamstrung and hurt. But when Jesus speaks of greatness, He says something totally different. Jesus said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. And this is so counterintuitive to what the, what the people expected of the, of the Messiah. They expected a military ruler to overthrow Rome, someone that would come in and, 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 and make Israel great again. They expected someone that would come in and rule things like a military dictator and a king. Rather, the Messiah that came was a humble carpenter from Nazareth who would bow down and he would wash to the disciples' feet and he would lay down his life on a cross. In the kingdom, it is the humble, it is the meek, it is the peacemaker, it is the servant that is the greatest. The king of your kingdom knelt down to wash his disciples' feet. Would you do the same? Will you humble yourself and serve God and serve his people? Will you serve your wife or your husband? James, the fourth chapter and the tenth verse says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Christ, the King of kings, came to earth as a humble servant. And we, as His disciples, must follow His example. We must take on the mindset of a humble servant. And when we humbly decide to serve those around us, we will begin to display... The last thing that I want for us to notice from the text, and that is that we will begin to show self-sacrificial love for those around us. Notice, again, a couple of verses from our text this morning. In the second verse that we read, and then the eighth verse, 
that, that we read. Paul begins this section of Scripture by reminding the brethren to love one another. He says that we should take on the same mindset as Christ. And take, when he took on the form of the servant, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He then said later in verse 17 that he was willing to sacrifice himself to his brothers and sisters there in Philippi. I'm reminded of what John wrote in 1 John 3. And we'll take a moment and read this this morning. 1 John, the third chapter, starting in the 16th verse. 1 John 3, starting in verse 16. It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brothers have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus, and love one another, as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his command, this commandment dwelleth in him, and, and he in him. And hereby, hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. John said that we know the love of God because he laid down his life for us. No one took his life from him. No one forced Jesus to go to the cross that day. He chose the cross. He chose the crown of thorns. He chose the nails, not because he had to, but because he loved us. And that's how we know that God loves us, because of this sacrifice that he gave for us. How God has served us, and Jesus has laid down his life and served us, even when we didn't deserve it. And because of that, we should love one another. And what there, notice again what we read there in the 16th verse when John said that we should lay down our lives for our brethren. But how do we lay down our lives for our brethren? Does that mean that we should be willing to to die literally or take a bullet for our brethren? I I think that there are times that, that that is necessary and that we should be willing to do that. But I think that there's more to it than that. Laying down our lives for the brethren means more than just physical death. It also means that we lay down our selfish will and serve the will of God and we serve His people. Jesus did this in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to go through the pain of the cross. He pled with His Father in heaven, let this cup pass for me. He said, is there any other way, God? Can we do this any other way? But then he said, not my will, but thine be done. He put the will of God in front of his own will. That is what it means to lay down your life. He didn't want to die that day, but he laid down his life and he loved us. Even when he didn't want to. And this is something we all need to remember. 
Because let's be honest, there are times where we don't really want to do what God wants us to do. There are times, wives, that if you're honest with yourself, you don't always want to submit to your husband. But you do because you love your husband and you lay down your life for him. And husbands, if you're honest, there are probably... There are going to be times where you don't follow God's will for you as a husband. And, and you, are, you, you don't want to do what he tells you to do when he says don't be bitter or harsh towards your wife. When she gets under your skin or rubs you the wrong way or, or you, you, want to, you, you don't want to do this or you don't want to do that. But you submit your will to God and do what he says as a husband because you've laid down your life for him and for your wife. And kids, let's be honest, I was a kid a long time ago. You don't always want to do what your parents ask you to do. Somewhere deep down, there's probably a part of you that questions that sometimes. But you do what your parents say you should do because you love your parents and you lay down your life for them. And everybody everybody here this morning, let's all be honest, you don't always, like I said, want to do what God tells you to do. There are times where you probably want to stay home on a Wednesday night. You don't want to drive all the way to church. It's too far. I don't want to go that far. I'll just stay home tonight. Or someone's rubbed you the wrong way and you've decided, you know what? Old brother and sister so-and-so, they need to hear the little piece of my mind that I've got loaded up for them. It's time that I let it go with both barrels today. Or you might want to slip back into some of those old habits that you've tried to overcome. But you don't because you love God and because you are to lay your life down to the will of God. Galatians 2 and verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ live with me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We crucify our lives. We crucify our will when we become Christians. And we live not after our own fleshly desires and not after our own will, but by faith to God and service to others. Just like Jesus Christ. And we all need to let this mind be in us. Let this mind be in you, the mind of a humble, loving servant. And ask yourself this morning, are you fulfilling this role in this church? There are, I don't know, 130, 140 people here. We have some visitors here, but the overwhelming majority of the people here are members of this congregation. Are you a member of this congregation that is active and connected and loving and serving the people here this morning. That is what you are called to do as a member of this congregation and as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Is this you? Take some time this week and think about that. Are you fulfilling this role? Is this your mindset as a member of this congregation? Perhaps it's not. Perhaps you've been failing to have this mindset and you've struggled being humble or or loving your brother or serving those around you and you'd like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy 
to do that with you and for you this morning. Perhaps you've never obeyed the gospel and and submitted to your Lord in baptism and become a child of God, never crucified your own selfish desires and submitted yourself to God in baptism. We'd be happy to do that with you and for you this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.